Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. Our guest is Rachel Swarns. She is a journalism professor at New York University and a contributing writer for the New York Times. Swarns has been a foreign correspondent for the Times while reporting from Cuba, Russia, and Southern Africa, where she was the Johannesburg bureau chief. Swarns wrote the book, American Tapestry, which was about the history of Michelle Obama's ancestors, and she co-authored the book, Unseen, Unpublished Black History, from the New York Times Photo Archive. Her new book is titled, The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. I'm joined by 18 of my Harvard classmates. Hello, Rachel. Um, we overlapped uh, for a few years uh, at the Times, but I didn't uh, spend much time in the newsroom, so I don't uh, know if we ever actually met. But um, I'm class of 63, as are the rest of us, mostly. And um, I, uh, <laughs> I'm recovering from uh, the last two books that I wrote. Uh, that have to do with uh, <laughs> Rachel segregation and what to do about it. Bill Collins, you live in Aiken, South Carolina. Grew up in the <clears throat> area, Harvard 63, Navy, got into engineering stuff, and now retired from all that. That's what brought me to South Carolina. Do a lot of volunteer work now. Hi, um, I'm class of 63 also. This is my cousin Henry, who's joining us for today. Um, and I'm an almost retired clinical psychologist. I live in the D.C. area, but I identify as a Californian. Jeff Fox uh, spent many years as a sociologist, focusing mostly on Latin America, and in recent years have been writing fiction. I'm living in southern Spain. Pete Savoy, I, I live in New Hampshire. I'm an editor and writer, and I write fiction, and I edit college textbooks. Hi, I'm Ann Huberman. I'm in Greenfield, New Hampshire. I just decided to sit outside. Uh, and I'm a retired academic librarian and a current climate activist. Okay, John. Oh, hi, John Woodford, 63, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And I'm an editor writer. I was um, edited on the national desk of the New York Times for three years in the 70s. Oh. Ezra Griffith, a retired academic psychiatrist at Yale. Hey, Jerry. I'm Jerry Secundi. I live in Pasadena, California, class of 63, Peace Corps, an environmental lawyer with a specialty in water quality. Hey, Mason. Uh, Mason Morford in Freeport, Maine. Uh, I have, for the last couple of weeks, been tutoring a 25-year-old Congolese dude who... Uh, Flew from the Congo to Ecuador and then walked the rest of the way here. Wow. Oh. Wow. And I'm discovering that although I majored in English at Harvard, I don't know jack shit about teaching someone to read English. <laughs> <laughs> but he said that uh, he found the stories in his workbook uh, sort of boring. And could I make them up? And I said, whoa. So I, just, <laughs> I just went to G, uh, uh, chat GBT and I said, Write me five distinct stories, no more than 250 words each, uh, <laughs> in which a, uh, about a Congolese person. So, and it cranked them right up. Really? Wow. Yeah. And uh, so now I can go back and refine them and put in a little more adventure and sex and stuff like that. <laughs> Great. Well, Great. He, better, he better write a book, your guy. <laughs> right. Robbie, Roberta, Robbie. Hi there. <clears throat> I'm a former Bostonian, currently living in Oakland, California. I was a graduate student at the Harvard School of Ed, 63 to 64, and a Peace Corps volunteer to the Philippines, part of the first mission there. <clears throat> and I read a retired psychologist now, and I currently work on <clears throat> issues of ageism, particularly in terms of how it affects medical care. George Allen. Are there... Uh... I live in Los Angeles. I'm a lawyer. I was also class of 63 and a roommate with uh, the late Fred East Easter, who was featured in uh, Last Negroes at Harvard. Uh, 
my contact with the Times was that uh, the late Robert Trumbull, who covered the Pacific and Vietnam and was at a, I believe at one point, uh, bureau chief for the Times in both Beijing and uh, Saigon, uh, covered uh, occupations that former clients of, my, <clears throat> of mine did of the Kwajalein Missile Range in the Marshall Islands where they did what were called sail-ins, where they went back and reoccupied their own islands. Ken Manister, I'm uh, originally from uh, Chicago, south side of Chicago, and uh, I'm also class of 63. I'm a re retired uh, professor of Santa Clara University, where I principally taught environmental law. Hey, Marcy. I, I run Clean Air Campaign and its Open Rivers and Archives projects in New York City. Um, hi, uh, Doug Shapiro. I live in Louisville, Kentucky. I'm a retired physician, a behavioral ecologist. I spent uh, much of my uh, academic life studying the behavior of hermaphroditic coral reef fish, in which all individuals mature and develop as females. And the only way you get a male in the population is for one of the adult females to change sex. Wow. Yeah. Uh, well, I should try that. Damn. <laughs> I understood that uh we we humans developed uh as uh females and then at six weeks uh testosterone comes in if we're gonna be a male. Um maybe we can talk about that later. Uh, <laughs> uh I, I'm an I'm a Almost totally functional clinical psychologist living in Nashville, Tennessee. I'm from New York and Boston. And and Robbie, I'm very interested in what you're talking about, about ageism in, in uh, health care. Okay, Anne. Hi, I'm Anne Grove. I'm originally from New York City and Providence and most recently from uh, D.C. and the Bay Area, uh, alternating between the two of them uh, recently. And um, I'm class of 63, uh, became a, a psychotherapist, and my specialty was uh, uh, trauma and specifically post-traumatic stress disorder. And one of the reasons that I'm interested in this group is that I see racism being traumatic for all of us in the society. Uh, yeah. And I'm, I'm interested in how uh, both the perpetrators and the victims uh, of violence are affected by it and that we need to come together as a community to try to find solutions that don't end up traumatizing our whole world. Right, right. Big, tall order, I know. <laughs> Connie McDougal, how are you? Good, it's been a while, huh? Yeah, nice to see you. Yeah, it's good to be back. Um, uh, I'm, I'm class of 63, Radcliffe, and um, class of 66, Harvard Law. I'm retired in New York City at upstate New York. And since it's summer, it's more upstate where I'm gardening, et cetera. And I'm happy to be back. And the subject sounds very interesting today. Okay. And uh, George. George Jones, currently living in Ann Arbor, Michigan, class of 63, BAA. BAA. Before affirmative action. Oh, <laughs> oh the Clarence Thomas. Uh, you and Clarence good. Thomas, right. <laughs> he's not BAA. <laughs> no, he's not, but he likes, he, it worries him. <laughs> right. Dorothy. Hi, sorry, I'm not on screen today. Uh, I am a class of 63 woman who never changed sex. Uh, <laughs> Congratulations. It's <laughs> still time. Uh, well, wait, I'll say a little more. Go ahead. <laughs> the most important thing. <laughs> so I spent my life in the nonprofit sector working to create opportunities for young people raised in poverty, created youth build and spread it around the country and, and, and the world. And I live in the suburbs of Boston. Okay. And Professor Swarms, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome. Oh, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. I'll tell you, um, I'll give you a, a quick um, bio and um, tell you kind of how I got into the book and um, and and what I found. And I always, um, uh, I enjoy obviously I, talking about my book. 
Um, but I, I love the conversation. So I'm looking forward really to hearing your questions and, um, and your thoughts. So um, I'm a longtime journalist. I uh, was born in Queens and grew up in Staten Island, actually. Um, and um, I um, started out at um, what was the St. Petersburg Times. I'm sorry. I went to um, Howard University um, where I studied uh, Spanish and African and Caribbean studies. I knew I wanted to be a journalist, but I wanted to work overseas. Um, I'm a Stuyvesant grad too, if there are any among uh, you guys here as a New Yorker. Um, so I got started in journalism at the St. Petersburg Times in uh, Florida, moved on to the Miami Herald and spent 22 years at the New York Times um, where I have done kind of the whole range of things that um, uh, reporters do. Um, I worked overseas. Um, uh, I was the Johannesburg bureau chief. I, I did stints in Russia and Cuba um, uh, in Central America. Um, and I was a Washington correspondent. Uh, I wrote a Metro column. Um, and um, written about the arts, just just the whole the whole range of things, and um, and this um, this book emerged um, at a time when I was um, uh, was known as a senior writer uh, for for the Times, but I was part of a uh, interdepartmental team of journalists. Um, that then the um, then executive editor Dean Bakay put together um, after um, the Dylan Roof um, massacre um, and all of the police shootings that were happening. It was a group of journalists um, focused on race and what was going on in the country. And I ended up. Um, this book emerged from a story that I wrote back in 2016. And what happened was um, a colleague of mine who was a business writer uh, got an email from uh, a Georgetown alum, uh, the CEO of a tech company who said, hey, you know, I wanna give the Times an exclusive. And the story is about a slave sale in 1838 that benefited Georgetown. And my colleague was intrigued, but also uncertain because, you know, was a slave sale from the 1800s even a story? Um, and it's really my great fortune that she didn't just delete the email. You have to remember that this was um, 2016, is before the 1619 project. Um, many of a, a number of you have. Um, connections to the times. Um, Ta-Nehisi Coates had, all written, had written the case for reparations by then, but it really, this kind of thing really wasn't something um, that we typically did. Um, but she didn't delete the email because she remembered that there was someone on the <clears throat> who she thought might know whether this was a story. And she forwarded it to me because she remembered um, that I had written a book. My first book um, was called American Tapestry. Um, the story of the black, white, and multiracial ancestors of Michelle Obama. And I had um, traced uh, Mrs. Obama's enslaved ancestors, telling the story of um, her, her family and, and their journey from slavery to the White House in five generations. So she forwarded it to me, and um, I knew immediately um, that it was a story. Um, and, and that was because of the work that I had done before. And it was, um, it was, you know, like it was really such a gift when I saw that because my first book, and I'll tell you a little bit about that because they're related, um, was a, examine how slavery shaped American families. And I could see immediately that this would allow me to do something um, take the next, what was for me the next step, which was to look at how slavery shaped American institutions. And I um, I gave you kind of a synopsis of the kind of work that I that I done at the times. I, I kind of stumbled into um, this kind of historical archival um, work. It really was kind of random. I was asked after the, um, that election in 2008 
uh, to write about Michelle Obama and um, the first family, to spend a year writing about them. It was a bit of an unusual decision um, because um, the first family is usually written about by the White House correspondents who write about them, you know, as they're, you know, chasing the president around the, the briefing room or on Air Force One and, and just when they have time. But there was a sense, it wasn't just the Times, it was a number of um, newspapers and outlets, you know, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Associated Press, decided that, um, you know, they wanted reporters to write about um, about her and about the family. And as many of you know, we like to think of ourselves as writing the first draft of history. And there was a sense that this family, you know, this Black first African-American family living in this White House, which was, as many of you probably know, built in part with slave labor, was going to be written about for generations to come. So um, I ended up midway through that time um, uh, finding out from a genealogist about um, an interesting story about her. Um, and ended up out in Birmingham, Alabama, trying to find out anything that I could about the First Lady's great-great-great-grandmother, who was an enslaved girl um, named Melvinia, uh, who was valued at about $450 in the 1850s, and her great-great-great-grandfather, who was a white man whose identity was a mystery. And... Um, I had never done this kind of archival work before. I kind of knocked on church doors. I spent hours um, in the archives um, and um, I ended up uh, at a cemetery, um, an old African-American cemetery um, looking for the first lady's, Melvinia's son, the first lady's great, great grandfather. And, you know, I'm a journalist who's always been intrigued by records. Uh, you know, that's the kind of work that I do. I'm known as a, more of a writer, but I've always been someone who um, is interested in, in, in records. And so I had, you know, I had everything, or at least I thought I had everything. I had his, his birth, you know, the paper that said where he was buried, who was buried next to him, um, you know, what row, everything. And I arrived at the cemetery and it was one of these old neglected African-American cemeteries. And as Richard well knows, and many of you probably know too, um, even the dead uh, were segregated back in the day. Um, and I spent an afternoon in that cemetery searching for his tombstone entirely unsuccessfully. Um, but at the end of that afternoon, I thought, oh my gosh, like I have never experienced anything like this, like this digging into this kind of history in this way um, just felt like, you know, I, I don't know what it felt like. So I, I came home and I said to my husband, well, you know, I don't know, what do I do with this? I Like this whole experience was like incredible. And, you know, maybe I get another degree or something. I have a master's degree too. And he's like, not that, no, <laughs> you got a mortgage, we got kids, something else. Um, and I ended up uh, writing that book. And after that book was done, um, it came out in 2012, um, Dean Baquet, the editor of the paper, said to me, okay, you've written this book about Michelle Obama's book. You've taken two years off to do it. What are you bringing us, you know, to the New York Times? And I said, oh, like uh, deep passion, um, broad knowledge of 19th century American slavery and reconstruction. And, and we both laughed because it was like one of these things like, how useless is that? Like, what is that going to do with for you? <laughs> and, um, and so I, I had this kind of what I tell people is like this midlife crisis about, you know, about 19th century American slavery. And I, and, and I spent, you know, the book came out in, in, in 2012. And I spent you know, four years trying to figure out what do I do with this and trying to write what I could, um, you know, blending his, about history and race when I could. So when this email came to me, I thought, oh my goodness, you know, this is, this is what I was looking for. And to give you um, a sense of, um, you know, I'm sorry, let me back up. So I knew immediately it was a story. I knew immediately that this would allow me to take kind of what the next step was, which in this work that, you know, I was trying to find my way in. I also was 
completely astonished because I had a better, you know, I'm a reasonably educated person. I had a better than average knowledge of um, 19th century American slavery by this time. Um, and I had never heard of Catholic priests owning and, and selling people. I, I just had not. Um, a small random fact is that I happen to be black and Catholic too. I mean, and I just did not know. Um, so, so that was fascinating. Um, and so the, the story that I wrote was about um, a slave sale, the slave sale that this Georgetown alum brought to our attention. Um, it was one of the largest um, mass uh, slave sales of the time of 1838. The book is entitled The 272, um, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church because 272 people uh, were sold um, by these priests. And to give you a sense of who they were and what happened, I always like to tell people um, a little story. And to do that, I like to bring you back um, for a minute, um, back to 1838, November of 1838, um, to the wharf um, at Alexandria, Virginia, you know, not far from where the nation's capital is now. And if you had been standing on the docks there that day, you would have seen them. Scores of people being loaded onto a ship, forcibly loaded. Um, there were elderly people, there were husbands and wives, um, there were children, there were babies um, wailing. Uh, you would have seen the crush of the crowd, um, parents clinging to their children, Eyewitnesses described people falling to their knees, begging for mercy. And these people were enslaved African-Americans who were being, who'd been sold and were being shipped down south, far from the people they loved and the world that they knew. And they had been owned and sold by um, some of the nation's most prominent Catholic priests, Jesuit priests, who happened to be among um, the largest slaveholders in Maryland. And when these priests uh, came up on tough times, there was um, an economic slump um, in the late 1830s, they did what a lot of people did, uh, which was uh, to sell off their assets. And in this instance, uh, 272 men, women, and children to save their um, most important mission project, uh, which was the institution we now know as Georgetown University, um, the first uh, Catholic institution of higher learning. I have a and, question about the ownership of yeah. the priests owned them or was it the church? It's just confusing in my mind. I didn't think priests owned anything. So uh, it is, so both actually. Um, priests as individuals did own people. Mm -hmm. um, and in this instance, it's a little bit complicated. The history is a little bit complicated. But by 1838, um, they were owned by the Jesuits, um, the, the Maryland province, the, the, which was the, so, you know, the Jesuits worldwide were divided into provinces and, and Maryland was the province in the United States. Um, and so these people were owned by the order. Um, but historically speaking, um, individuals owned people too. Oh gosh, okay. Priests owned people too. Um, so yes, so they they were they were sold to to save Georgetown. Um, and obviously they were successful. Georgetown, as we all know, is one of our elite universities. And um you know, uh, but at a terrible, terrible, terrible cost. Um, you know, families were um, split up um, and divided. Um, and so this story ran in 2016. Um, Richard Cellini, um, the guy who is actually right now working at Harvard, um, helping Harvard um, identify um, the enslaved people connected to Harvard, um, had gotten interested in this because 
in, in the fall of 2015, um, students were protesting um, about the names of buildings at, at Georgetown, which carried the names of some of these priests um, who um, had been involved in the sale. Georgetown changed the names, had been planning on changing the names, um, but Richard had reached out to someone um, on a working group that had been established by Georgetown to wrestle with his history and said, well, okay, names changed, buildings, you know, that's all fine and good, but these people, what happened to them? And the faculty member told him, oh, well, they all died. And he said, they all died? Like nearly 300 people are sold to Louisiana and all of them died? He didn't believe that for a second. And he's a kind of wealthy to do, wealthy, well-to-do person who um, had never been really into, um, involved in racial justice, social justice issues, white guy, Republican, just not, you know, not his thing. He's a tech company CEO. But this really resonated with him. He loved Georgetown. And he said, well, you know, it feels like we owe something to these people, like almost everything to these people. So he hired a team of genealogists and, and started looking for descendants. And so by the time my story ran, um, he had identified uh, about a handful, his team had identified about a handful of descendants. And in writing that first story, I really, I'm, I'm mindful as a journalist and as someone who um, writes about slavery that there is um, a, among some people a tendency to, when you start talking about these issues say, no, thank you, slavery, nothing to do with me, you know, uh, turn the page, not interested. So I really had to think about how how to tell the story, how to get people engaged. And I, you know, people think, oh, it, so many people amorphous, big, long ago, unconnected to me. So I decided to tell the story of one person, a child, a 13 year old child, 13, 14, 15 year old child, and to trace his journey. Um, and my idea always was, from 1838 to the descendant on the other side in 2016. And by then Richard had found and his team had found some of those folks. I was able to do that um, story. I also wrote a, a sidebar because we knew that there were probably many, many more people tied to the sale. Um, we linked to a passenger manifest on the one of the ships that carried people to Louisiana. Um, and it was a uh, an important document because it actually had first and last names and enslaved people often appear in the records just by first names, but this document had first and last names. And so we just asked people, you know, are you black and Catholic from Southern Maryland? Are you black and Catholic from this little town in Louisiana, Maringouin? Are, do you, are any of these names, do they, do you have these names in your family? Scores of people reached out to us um, and scores of people since then, hundreds, thousands actually, um, now have um, have tied, um, uh, found their ties to this history. Um, as of this date, at least 6,000. Um, and so I, um, you know, you know, I decided to write a book. I felt like there was um, more um, to explore. And what I found, and then I am looking at the time. I will um, take your questions. What I found was, you know, I was interested um, in Georgetown, um, but what I found was it wasn't just Georgetown, it was the Catholic church itself. And the priests um, who built Georgetown um, had relied on um, slave labor and slave sales um, and, and, you know, and enslaved people since at least 1717. And those priests um, built the underpinnings of the Catholic Church, um, the first archdiocese, the first cathedral, uh, the first Catholic institution of higher learning, Georgetown, um, priests who um, operated a plantation and sold people, um, built the first Catholic seminary. Um, and after the, the sale um, in 1838, um, and I should tell you that um, they were selling people in part because um, Georgetown was was in, in terrible shape and the Maryland province was too. 
but the the priest who was really pushing for this, the, the Jesuit leader who was really pushing for it, also had a vision. He saw this church that had emerged in Maryland, um, the early church in the United States that was a rural plantation church. And he said, this is not where we're going. He could see that, you know, immigrants were pouring in from Ireland um, and, and other places in Europe to uh, the major cities. And he said, that's, that's the future of the church in this country. And if we as, as Jesuit leaders want to be relevant, um, that's where we need to be. We need to sell these people and we need to build a constellation of, of, of colleges uh, uh, to, uh, on the Eastern seaboard to um, educate um, these newcomers. Um, and of course, his, his vision was it completely right. Um, that was the future. And the, after 1838, um, the Jesuits um, would directly finance um, the establishment of Holy Cross um, and uh, Loyola University of Maryland. Um, they offered support in other ways for other institutions as well, um, offering, um, uh, you know, supplying leaders, you know, uh, of institutions and training educators and seminarians at Boston College, Fordham, St. Joe's, Santa Clara. Um, so um, it had quite an impact, and I will leave it there. Could you elaborate a little bit on how you went? It sounded as though you went door to door in Maryland to find descendants of uh, the folks you were looking for. And how did that expand to something like, I think you said 6,000 uh, names currently? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so as I mentioned, Richard Cellini, um, the guy who got in touch with us in the first place, established, hi, just, you know, put together a team of genealogists. And so they they actually were the ones who got started. We also, you know, published this sidebar and said, do you have this history? They wrote, people wrote to us, and then we did some work too. Georgetown has done a little bit of work also, but primarily the, the genealogical work has been done by Richard Cellini's organization, which is an independent nonprofit called the Georgetown Memory Project. Um, and they are the ones who have identified um, at least 6,000 people now. Mm -hmm. uh, Doug. Um, yeah, I must admit in, in listening to you talk about the uh, Catholic Church and their involvement with uh, keeping slaves, I suddenly realized that it has just simply never occurred to me, even though I've read, I guess, a reasonable share of books about the history of our country and slavery and so forth, never occurred to me that religious groups as a religious group would own slaves. And so I'm wondering if you would comment whether this is the only religious group that has done that or whether there have been other ones as well. Right. It's, it's, it's a great question. And, you know, um, it is one of the things I'm, I'm, I'm very, my, my main kind of research interest is, is looking at slavery and contemporary institutions. And it's, it's not just Georgetown and it's not just the Catholic church, even the Quakers actually um, enslaved people um, early on before they made a decision not to. Um, Protestants enslaved people. I mean, and you know, there is, um, and, and Episcopalians, I mean, there is a, um, you know, a, a number of these institutions, not just um, Georgetown and not just the Catholic Church, um, have begun wow. reckoning, right, a, a number of, there are actually more than 90 universities, they formed an organization called um, Universities Studying Slavery, um, are looking into this, this history, um, and a number of churches, a number of faith organizations are um, are doing that. Um, Virginia Theological Seminary, for instance, which is an Episcopal seminary um, in Virginia, actually um, is is paying um, reparations, um, actually handing out checks to people who they've determined they're looking at a broader um, period. Uh, uh, descendants of people who were enslaved um, on um, their campus or 
um, people who worked um, at the institution during um, the Jim Crow era. So yeah, not just Georgetown, not just the Catholic Church. Okay, Ken. Uh, yes, um, I have uh, two questions and I realize they, they may be somewhat tangential uh, to your work, but I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts. Um, uh, although I'm not Catholic, I've been um, associated with Santa Clara University now for over over 50 years, and I uh, have developed considerable admiration for the uh, for the Jesuits. Uh, for years, I was saying if uh, you didn't have to be Catholic and celibate, I would be thrilled to be a Jesuit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but one question, and my, my first question is, uh, my understanding of the Jesuit order now is the leadership of it is international. Uh, it is based in Rome. And I'm just wondering if in terms of what you're describing with the church and the Jesuit uh, leaders uh, out of Maryland, it was that entirely an independent operation or in terms of European leadership of the order, was that an issue? Right. Um, that's my it's, first question. Oh, it's, it's an excellent question um, because uh, it, it, it was an international organization then too. And so, you know, um, even before the Jesuits arrived in Maryland in the 1630s and 1634, um, the Catholic Church um, had wrestled um, with the question of slavery. And, you know, the the priests who I'm writing about were interesting because unlike some white people at the time, you know, they did not, they did, who, there were some white people at the time who viewed black people as just brutes, almost like animals, right? Like a different species, not us, right? The, these these priests did not view them that way. They viewed them as people with souls and that they had an obligation to them because of that. And so um, the Catholic Church before um, the, um, the folks um, landed in Maryland had wrestled with this. Um, and, you know, there had been, some of you may know of Bartolome de las Casas who, who had advocated on behalf of the indigenous, right? Saying because the indigenous were enslaved first, right? In the Americas and, and, and successfully he was able to, you know, persuade the church that, you know, enslaved that, that indigenous people, native people should not be enslaved, but the church remained silent for a long, long time about the enslavement of Africans and African descended people. And so in the 1830s, but like I said, you know, they did have this idea though about, you know, black people that they were enslaving having souls. So in the 1830s, when this leader um, decides that, you know, he's got this vision and, and this is what he wants to do, um, to bring, um, to expand um, the Catholic Church and the Jesuits in particular, he can't do it. He can't just, he can't just do it. I mean, some, they, well, he can't just do it. So he, he, he petitions Rome. He says, we, this is what I want to do. Um, here's why. Um, and um, this is why it's important. Um, and Rome dithers like for a bit, like for years, actually, um, he's in it by 1830 is, is really pressing hard for this. Um, Rome dithers. Um, and, and then they do the one thing they couldn't sell them all, but then they did kind of like on their own kind of on the side, start just selling small groups of people, you know, just because they didn't need permission for that. Um, in the end, um, Rome agrees and gives them permission to sell under certain conditions though. Because again, there is this sense of responsibility. It's paternalistic, right? But there is this sense of responsibility. So the conditions are that families aren't to be separated, um, that the money is not to be used to pay off debts. Um, the money is to be used to grow the church only. Um, and the leader of the Jesuits at the time, and I actually don't have a book handy. I was going to say it's a... Um, says, you know, like, you know, our souls are in danger here, basically, people like, 
we're doing we we have to this 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 feels like <laughs> this feels like risky business in 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 the morality department of you know selling people like all of these people and tearing them from the like e even though enslavement was okay in their minds so it's also important to say well let me i'll say that in a second that you know that this slave sale the leader in rome was worried about like we could about the morality of it. Um, I would also say that, um, and 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 so he got, he was approved. Uh, the guy sold the people. He, he broke um, <laughs> the rules, ignored a lot of the conditions, separated families, used the money to um, pay off debts. He's actually um, forced out of his position and sent off um, to, to Rome and is sent off to Europe to kind of in disgrace for a bit, but he's rehabilitated and becomes the first president of Holy Cross. Um, but it's, I think it's also important to say that, um, so um, is that, you know, uh, even though the Catholic church writ large approves of, um, doesn't within the United States and in Rome really allows this to happen for a really long time. And I could talk more about kind of the steps they take before they finally say that this is a problem. Um, there were people, priests all along the way who raised questions. And I think that's really important because mm. people often say um, when you're writing about slavery, don't bring your 21st century ideas about right and wrong here. It was legal. It was not, you know, everybody was doing it. It was the economy. All of those things were true. It was legal. It was the basis of the economy. But there were priests all along the way who felt like this was this was wrong. My other question. Lonely voices and utterly unsuccessful <laughs> ones. <laughs> Ken, you had another question. Yeah, yeah. But I, in, in the interest of uh, allowing other folks to get questions, and I'll just make it as a as a as a comment because um, because Professor, you you sort of touched on this. Uh, Santa Clara, I know, was founded by the Dominicans and then later taken over by the Jesuits. And I've been curious for many years, knowing that Santa Clara is one of the original uh, mission sites. Um, I've always been curious about the treatment of the Native Americans, uh, the indigenous people uh, at that time. And I guess I'm I'm assuming from what you said, what you mentioned in passing, that there is research going on as to the extent of the treatment of and perhaps enslavement of of some of the native uh, Californians in the development of not just Santa Clara, but other of the Catholic universities uh, in the West. There's a there's a new book out actually about slavery in California. Um, and I, I try and see if I can find it. But um, I, and I think that um, yeah. Santa Clara has actually um, has actually looked at um, the indigenous in particular. Um, I, I I believe I and, and that's not my um, that's not my area, but um, but I believe that they have and that that history is you know more ex yeah you I, know I got this. yeah two 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 fun facts in that regard. One I have noticed the university is now regularly at least. In, in words, acknowledging the uh, presence of the university on uh, on, on Native American land. Yeah, and there's yeah. things going on. The other thing, which is interesting, which reminds me, some of you may be familiar with uh, the University of California's Hastings College of the Law in San Francisco, which yeah. is a long-established law school. I, I taught there a number of years myself. It's not called Hastings anymore because... Uh, Justice oh, okay. Hastings apparently turned out that he was a slaveholder, I think, of the Native Americans, and they changed the name uh, of that university, of that law yeah. school. Yeah, the Times wrote a harrowing story about that history. I mean, there's so much which which floored me, frankly, with that the name change. Of, mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, thank you very much. And 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 I think there's there's certainly more work to be done on all of this. In terms of um, the church and, um, and 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 native people, I I don't you know I don't have a lot of information about that. Um, I know that the Jesuits, when they um, arrived in Maryland, um, many of them the idea was to you know bring um, you know religion and you know civilization to 
um, you know, the native people. I mean, that was a, a goal of theirs. Um, and but I but I don't I don't know much of um, that history, unfortunately. Jeff. Oh yeah. Well, thanks. Um, well, Rachel, I think you you've already gone a long way toward answering or at least suggesting an answer to what was going to be my first question, which was about the complicated reasoning that these priests must have gone through to save their own souls while they were doing this, recognizing recognizing that the people that they were selling had souls and, and thus were human beings uh, like them. Uh, and, and there must have been some very complicated arguments around that. I, I think you've already implied some of the complication involved, uh, but clearly this, uh, this man who had the vision, his vision was that the church should be oriented toward creating institutions for the European Catholics who are arriving, right? For the mm -hmm. Irish and others. Okay, well, so I'll, I'll ask you a second question, which is a little, little much more concrete, and that is, how has Georgetown reacted to this information, to your research? Yeah, so as I mentioned, so Georgetown, even before um, I even knew about any of this, in, in the fall of, in August, I think, of 2015, that at first, the academic year that fall, they had already established a working group to try and look at this history. They had um, opened two buildings that, um, or reopened uh, two buildings that carried the names of these, two of these priests mm -hmm. who were involved. And they knew that this would be, or might be an issue. And, and they decided they really needed to grapple with this history. So they were grappling with it um, even before um, I, I, Richard Cellini started looking for descendants and even before I wrote my first story. Um, my first story um, got a lot of uh, attention certainly um, and, and, and grew the descendant community for sure. Um, so what has Georgetown done? Georgetown has done a number of things. One is the first thing they did, which was in the fall of 2016, they became the first major university to um, offer what is in effect legacy status to descendants of um, folks who, who had been enslaved um, um, by the Jesuits and were sold in this sale. So if if you are can establish your um, ancestral ties to this, you get preference um, in admissions. Um, they changed the names of buildings to um, students, and then and they created an institute um, for the study of slavery. Students at Georgetown in 2000, and, and then they said they were also going to be doing other things. 2019 students said, you're taking too long. Um, we uh, need you to do more. Um, descendants had, in growing numbers, had started to organize. They were pressing um, the Jesuits to create a, a foundation, um, a, a billion dollar foundation. Um, so there's a lot of pressure um, on Georgetown as they were figuring out what to do. And students actually, in a referendum in um, the spring of 2000, am I right? Yeah, the spring of 2019, um, uh, decided, voted to impose a fee on themselves um, that would raise uh, $400,000 a year that they wanted to go to descendants. Um, Georgetown said, no, 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 we're not going to, in effect, tax students, but we will raise that amount. And um, we will raise $400,000 a year, um, and that money will go to projects that benefit descendants. Um, that the first um, projects were approved um, this this year took a longer than anyone expected the pandemic and other things um and that's where what they are doing um the jesuits partnered with a group of descendants um to create a foundation um and pledged a hundred million to pledge to promise to raise a hundred million dollars um to fund racial reconciliation projects and also um to benefit descendants um, it was the largest, um, it was a milestone in that it was the largest effort made by the Roman Catholic Church in the United States to address its history um, and participation in the American slave trade. Um, it has been, uh, though, um, descendants have been deeply divided about it. Um, 
you know, uh, some very unhappy about it. Um, fundraising has been really slow. Um, and so it's unclear what's going to happen there. But that's that's kind of what those institutions have done so far. Thank uh, you. John. Well, uh, I would strikes me that every major institution in our country in this hemisphere has been built upon slavery economically. So it would have been it would have been a man bites dog story if the Catholic Church were not found to have been participating in and supporting and profiting from slavery, not only in Washington, D.C., but you can think about South America and Central America and their history. So although they had people we might think of as abolitionists or you know people who opposed slavery for some reason or another, the central institutions supported it even before colonization. Uh -huh. And and that's that's and then if you read the chat, that was that was a point you made in the chat, which is an excellent point. I mean, you know, again, I, I mentioned that um, the Jesuits were among the largest slaveholders in Maryland, um, you know, owning about three hundred people. But the numbers in Latin America that were owned were far, far bigger. I I want to say thousands, but I don't know. I mean, but but there's been research done on that. I mean, it's. In a way, it, you're absolutely right. It's and you know, it's it's banks. It's you know, I, I wrote a I, I wrote a piece for the Times that year about New York Life, which you know, got its first business, you know, um, in in slave insurance. It's I mean, it's if you dig a little bit, you'll find it. On, on the other hand, I'll say that in every era, it takes a certain kind of story to awaken people's awarenesses and awareness and uh, you know, prick their consciences or whatever it takes to stimulate people to, to think about these, these, this history. So to that end, it's really great that you're doing stories like this because yes. obviously the response of students uh, growing up to date, it's key to uh, alert them to, to their past. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah, Connie. I have to say that my questions, all of them have been asked and answered. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I have an observation, though, which is si similar to what John just said, which is that I think every little area that's examined for a connection to slavery in our history and in our society will reveal a deep uh, implication in that institution. And I think that I, I agree with John that these small stories are important to get people to understand how uh, this institution underpins the wealth of this country. Right. Um, and then I move on to the next step in my mind, which is, if that's true, it's very strange that we act with horror and think that the individual slave owners are the bad actors. <laughs> yeah. And that the rest of us, or the rest of them, were fine people, but oh, shock, there was a priest who owned a slave. And I don't know how we're going to deal with it. That's all these name changes. It's as if, if you change the name, you've got the culprit removed and you haven't. Uh -huh. and, right. Um, so it's very interesting and in how all these separate researches are going to come together uh, in, in our, our self-image, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Richard. Yeah, um, Rachel, I, I've admired your work for so long, and I've been following you since your first Georgetown story. I've been following it with with great interest. But I want to know what your reaction is uh, to, to my view of the um, the the legacy admission policy and and similar uh, remedies that Georgetown is undertaking. Obviously, most African Americans in this country can't identify the specific institution that enslaved their ancestors. And in fact, even the, the, the Louisiana descendants of the Georgetown slaves, those 6,000 are now descended from many from slaves that were owned by many, many institutions, not just Georgetown. So this notion of giving uh, of, of Georgetown, um, giving preferences only to the people that can particularly identify as having been descended from uh, the, the the original enslavement by the Jesuits seems to me to be flawed and that uh, Georgetown and the other institutions that you named, banks and all of them, have a general 
uh, obligation to African Americans, not to the specific ones that happen to be identified, uh, is descendants from them. A, a very tiny proportion of, of African Americans can identify who the particular enslavers were of their ancestors. You're you're absolutely right, and I mean it is that was both an issue. Well, so for this community um, of descendants, this was an issue because not only are if not only cannot is it extraordinarily difficult to do this kind of um, genealogical work. Not everybody, not even if you could do it. Not everybody wants to go to, not everyone wants to go to Georgetown. Not everyone can go to Georgetown, right? So that's that's one thing for this particular group of people. But as as a larger, you know, but uh, to take it more broadly, as 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 you are doing, you're 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 absolutely right. And 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 in some ways, um, some of you may be familiar with um, William Darity at, at Duke, who has looked at. Um, uh, the issue of reparations kind of more broadly. He he argues that um, a lot of these efforts, um, these institutional efforts, and we are in a moment where there are a number of institutional efforts, a number of universities, um, Harvard is, is one of them, trying to examine this history, trying to figure out how to make amends, not only obviously, um, I mentioned Virginia Theological Society, but not only, you know, universities or institutions, you know, municipalities, Evanston, Illinois, the state of California, right? So there's a lot going on right now, so far more than I ever imagined I would ever see. But what Darity would say is that in some ways, those are kind of piecemeal approaches to what is a larger, you know, which is a national thing. He would argue that the federal government needs to do something. Um, and, um, and, and certainly, the idea that um, any of this could be um, really tied to direct um, genealogical, um, you know, archival material, you know, is is that would not be that would not be a a so that would help a, a, a you know a minute um, number of people. Um, so I think you're right about that. Um, you know what. What but we, we also know, you know, you know, history is a battleground right now. People are, I mean, at the same time that we have this movement, this kind of fledgling movement of institutions and, and municipalities and localities trying to address, um, grapple with this, address this history, try and figure out kind of what, what to do. We have, you know, politicians who, and, and government officials who are trying to prevent the teaching of, of you know, about race, slavery, history, all of that, you know? So I, I'm not, I, I, on the one hand, from where I stood in 2016, April of 2016, where I wrote that first story to where I sit right now, I, I, I would never have, have dreamed that Georgetown or the Jesuits would have done what they, what they did. Um, and I would never have dreamed that there would be this kind of experimentation that's going on around the country. At the same time, you're absolutely right in terms of the impact um, and, and that's what descendants are saying. I mean, and, you know, and folks who are in favor of reparations are saying, you know, this is, it's, it's, you know, good first steps of what the, what the descendants say, not nearly enough. Mm -hmm. right. well, I just add one thing though. Yeah. Um, oh, my, my point, yeah, my point is, is, you know, what Darity proposes, is, it's not going to happen. Yes, so you're right. Georgetown's <laughs> What's yes. Georgetown University's responsibility? And the point I'm making is that I think, and I wonder if you agree, George, having discovered this history, Georgetown, ha Georgetown has an obligation to African-Americans generally, not to those that specifically can identify through this genealogical research descendants from those 272 people. Uh, I see what you're saying. You know, so I think I think they probably would agree to that. Um but and and so maybe they would say, you know, I'm not sure. I think they would probably agree that they they that they you know that the genealogical kind of remedy is is very narrow and too narrow, and that their obligations are broader than that. Um, but what the remedy is, I I'm not sure that they know. Maybe they would say they're create. They they also talk about you know the work they're doing as 
as a university, what do universities do? They've created an institute for the study of slavery. They might mm -hmm. talk about those kinds of things. Um, but um, I haven't heard of anything, you know, concrete that yeah. would deal with, the, with what you're raising. Well, listen, thank you so much. It's really been yeah. a wonderful uh, session. And yeah. uh, what are you working on next? So um, I really would like to, um, I really want to, um, you know, deepen Americans' understanding of the connections between um, slavery and contemporary institutions. So um, my next project is um, to build um, a digital archive that will house some of the records um, that um, show these connections to universities, banks, et cetera. I, I want it to be kind of one-stop shopping for for writers, scholars, community folks who um, are interested in kind of the histories um, and uh, of the of the institutions around them. Oh, great! Oh, great. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank, thank you. Yeah. Thanks for thank coming. you. Take care now. That was Rachel Swarns. Her book is titled The 272, The Families Who Were Enslaved and Sold to Build the American Catholic Church. And that's it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast, which you can find on Apple and Spotify or from wherever you get your podcasts. Our podcasts also stream on WIRXradio.org every Thursday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time. Plus, you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard. <laughs>